A uh, quick review. Uh, this is our second to last week as we continue to talk about a, the study of practices, the practices of following Jesus. Jesus. And if you remember uh, the very first week, what we talked about is that we ourselves are most fundamentally desiring creatures, loving creatures, worshiping creatures. And that that is uh, more so of who we are as those made in the image of God, maybe even more primarily than cognitive and intellectual creatures. That's certainly a part of it, but we do what we want to do. We move towards those things that we desire most. And so uh, what we're talking about then in terms of spiritual formation or growth in the Christian life uh, has a lot to do with the practices that would begin to get at those loves and those desires to transform those loves and desires so that we love Jesus and his kingdom above all else. And then that rightly orders our loves in the rest of our lives. So we've talked about how this is a work of God's spirit in us, but we're called to sort of put ourselves in the way of the spirit's work in our lives. And so that's what that's what we're doing. A few quotes for you there. Uh, the two from Willard we've read every week. Grace is opposed to earning, not to effort. So we're called to put forward effort because of this grace that's been shown to us. We must seek out ways to live and act in union with the flow of God's kingdom life that should come through our relationship with Jesus. And then this quote this week from Tom Wright that has everything to do with transformation and with Easter. Christian holiness consists not of trying as hard as we can to be good, but of learning to live in the new world created by Easter. That's a really helpful quote because it gets at what we're doing by uh, instilling and giving ourselves to these practices. We are learning how to live in this new world created by Easter where Jesus has risen. So that's what we're doing Uh, this morning. We are moving more into uh, what might not be considered foundational or fundamental disciplines as much. And they are, I don't want to say they're unrelated, but they pretty much are unrelated. So we're kind of just dividing our time in half. These were both things that I wanted to talk about. And so that's what we're going to do. So there's, uh, there may be not as much continuity between these. So uh, we're going to talk about secrecy and then about feasting, uh, both as spiritual practices that we need to, uh, to instill and to give ourselves to. So we'll start first with secrecy. There will be a lot of overlap here with some of what we've talked about in previous weeks. So first, a quote from Calhoun that gets at what we're talking about here and how it's not something that we practice regularly or that doesn't necessarily come naturally to us. She says, it is no secret that most of us do not believe in secrecy. Anonymity is not our thing. Recognition, accolades and the limelight are. We want people to know just how generous, smart, successful, and popular we are. But we don't want to appear to be a braggart, so we come up with subtle and socially approved ways of promoting ourselves and our image. We give money to causes where our name gets out. We name drop about who we know. We let slip how how and where we volunteer. Every good deed we do sees the light of day. The obvious contemporary example are humble brags online. Uh, as a way to put forward what it is that you're doing in a way that is socially acceptable, <laughs> uh, that is not uh, not the practice of secrecy. So what do we mean by this term? What is secrecy? Here are a couple definitions. In the discipline of secrecy, we abstain from causing our good deeds and qualities to be known. And then Calhoun 
expands on this definition a little bit more. Secrecy is practicing the spirit of Christ reflected. Okay, this is another using the um, dictation that messed up here. I don't don't actually know what that word is supposed to be. Not hidden nests. Um, Yeah, yeah. Uh, Hidden nests, hidden nests. That's what it's supposed to be. In hiddenness. Yeah. Secret is practic- secrecy is practicing the spirit of Christ reflected in hiddenness, anonymity, lack of display, and the holding of confidences. So it's interesting, she and others kind of broaden this out some to talk about uh, how we can, how even the temptation to divulge what we know, if it's some sort of uh, exclusive or privileged information, can even manifest this desire to... Um, to be known and to be special, to put forward our uh, our reputation and to show forth our privileged position. So it's not first talking about uh, confidentiality, but that can be an aspect of this. It, it's more about this heart disposition that we have to want to put ourselves on display and receive recognition. Uh, and so this is the practice that works against that. Here are some biblical passages that would speak to this. One from Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. This is uh, exactly what we do when we fail to practice secrecy. Uh, But in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. And then probably the best known passage or the the passage that deals with this most directly is one we've looked at uh, in multiple uh, capacities in this study. And it comes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. Uh, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. And then so he goes on and speaks of of, uh, when we give, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And then he moves on to prayer. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And then moves on to fasting. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. See the emphasis over and over again there of the importance of this being something between you and the father and not something that is done in order to be seen by others. And then a quote there from John the Baptist that kind of summarizes this perspective really on our lives. He must increase. He being Jesus but I must decrease. So uh, as a way to talk some about this and get in onto the challenges, what, what are some of the challenges and difficulties of this practice of secrecy? No challenges or difficulties? Pretty easy. Yeah. It takes two. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. What else? Yeah, 
Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, where it, yeah, it, what is cultural is to put everything on display. Uh, humility is not valued in this way, and even if humility is valued, it's valued as a way to be seen and be praised—a false humility of some sort, rather than a genuine anonymity. Yeah, Lily. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That 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 is a real struggle where um, there there could be real consequences for not doing things in order to be seen because you are not on the same fast track that other people are to then uh, being recognized and 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 then receiving promotions, etc. Yeah, good. What else? Yeah. Yeah. I think I think what Jesus means there is that that good feeling that you get when you are seen is the extent of your reward for that practice. Uh, I think it's it's that that simple that you you have uh, you have foregone the the real blessing and reward of the smile of your father and the communion with him who sees in secret and will reward you there uh, because you've desired the praise of others instead. Yeah. Yeah, Steve. There is no secret when two people know an issue. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's right. Uh, where we can, uh, yeah, when, when somebody else knows, and we, I even think of a way that you can, um, under the guise of secrecy, tell other people and ask them not to speak any more about these things. Uh, but it becomes a great way in that context to put yourself forward as one who's doing it really to be seen, even if it's just by one person. You know, I think something can be secret if you just witness something very embarrassing mm-hmm. on another person's part that no one else was around to witness. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't uh, and don't draw attention uh, to them that you saw it, just to go away and pretend it never happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Overlooking that in that way. Yes, yeah, even. I think also it becomes our identity. You know, yeah. You're putting yourself out on display. That's your identity. Yes. And so, like revealing other people's faults, that's kind of putting out that's their identity. I'm not like that. Yes. Uh, yeah. And and I show myself to be better than that person by these standards. That's yeah. That that's where we're going in a big way right there. Yeah. You thinking about why this would be difficult? Uh, that we're self righteous and we our worth and value is wrapped up in what people think of us. And so what we do constantly is to uh, mask our insecurities and our fears by putting forward uh, our practices of righteousness or whatever might get us some esteem in the eyes of other people. Um, thinking also, yeah. Hey, Clint. I think how much of this is towards our worship? I mean, everything that Jesus says is about our righteousness before men. Yeah. Our prayer, our giving. Yes. Um, versus, you know, our talents and gifts. Right. Increasing our you know, job and, and success. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, is, there a, is there a distinction here? That, yeah, I mean, I think to ground it in worship is exactly right because the, uh, the, the uh, a point there of Jesus in Matthew 6 is that you're not doing it, you're not worshiping God when you do these things in order to be seen. You're doing it for some, because you're bowing down to some other idol or some other... Uh, some other object of worship, ultimately yourself, but 
uh, other ways in which that's going to manifest itself. Um, and so this is definitely in that realm, and we'll get to how um, this is a matter of worship. As we've said about all of the spiritual disciplines, that this is a matter of reordering and redirecting our loves and our object of worship, um, such that you really can't, you can't practice these things unless our object of worship uh, are put back in order in that way. Yeah, Liz. Yes, and it's baptized. I say, and it's baptized as something that's okay because it's right, right, yeah. Here's a quote from Willard that gets at this: One of the greatest fallacies of our faith, and actually one of the greatest acts of unbelief, is the thought that our spiritual acts and virtues need to be advertised to be known. The frantic efforts of religious personages and groups to advertise and certify themselves is a stunning revelation of their lack of substance and faith. Okay, uh, very convicting. Uh, So why should we practice secrecy? What are the purposes or the benefits from it? If you notice, uh, I use the term uh, like terms like liberate and freedom uh, throughout these purposes. And that's intentional because I think that incessant need or what feels like an incessant need to prove yourself to win the argument to get the last word to show yourself to be great in some way can feel a lot like slavery uh, because your entire life revolves around building your resume and putting yourself forward as one who should be loved and esteemed by other people Uh, and so obviously where we're going with this is that it is the gospel it is jesus's work on our behalf that liberates us from that slavery, that breaks the power of that slavery and ultimately woos us away from this need to put ourselves forward in that way. And as usual, there's going to be plenty of overlap in these practices. So first, practice of secrecy helps set us free from the hunger for fame, justification, and the intention and the attention of others. So what this does over time is it allows us to keep our achievements or these legitimate good things that we are doing as followers of Jesus, uh, private. Uh, and this is where practices become important. This is not something that just happens right away. This is something that requires practice and time in order to develop and foster in our lives. And of course, the spirits at work in the midst of that. Secondly, so practice of secrecy liberates us from the incessant need to compete with others. Uh, This is maybe one of the most convicting parts of Willard's whole book, Spirit of the Disciplines, that I have there. If you want to experience the flow of love as never before, the next time you're in a competitive situation, pray that the others around you will be more outstanding, more praised, and more used of God than yourself. Really pull for them and rejoice for their successes. If Christians were universally to do this for each other, the earth would soon be filled with the knowledge of God's glory. I think that that is uh, very insightful and very convicting. Uh, and I even think that that last little bit to say that this is a this is a specific issue, as was mentioned, amongst Christians and within the church, rather than being for one another, we're secretly wishing uh, another person's demise because it might cut at your own praise that you receive from other people. And that's uh, that is hard because it's real. Uh, so. This is what this practice does for us. 
Thirdly, the practice of secrecy is an embodied act. It's something we actually do with ourselves of finding our identity in Jesus rather than in other places or of reordering, redirecting our worship to him fundamentally rather than to ourselves or to various ways in which those idols would manifest themselves. Few things are more important and stabilizing to our walk of faith than this discipline. Gosh, typos everywhere. Uh, In the practice of secrecy, we experience a continuing relationship with God independent of the opinions of others. Secrecy rightly practiced enables us to place our public relations department entirely in the hands of God. Who lit our candles so we could be the light of the world, not so we could hide under a bushel. We allow him, and that's the important distinction, we allow him to decide when our deeds will be known and when our light will be noticed. And of course, this comes from a deep sense, deep conviction, deep belief and understanding that your identity really does come in Jesus. That you don't have to continue to compete and put forward this image because your image and identity is wrapped up in somebody apart from yourself. It's wrapped up in Jesus and what he's done for you. And it's only as we embrace that and and are rooted in that identity that something like this actually becomes possible, where the PR campaign can be put on hold. Um, And of course, what's what's wonderful about this and these practices is that this actually the practice of secrecy enhances that rootedness and that grounding in our identity in Jesus. Uh, fourthly, the practice of secrecy teaches love and humility before God and others. So there's an outward component to this practice as well. Secrecy at its best teaches love and humility before God and others. And that love and humility encourages us to see our associates in the best possible light, even to the point of our hoping they will do better and appear better than us. So this is this embodied practice of Philippians 2, 3 that we, that we uh, read earlier. But what we need to see is that the result is that this is we, we can actually then love people uh, because when people are our competitors, uh, obviously, when we're wishing their demise so that we look better, we're not loving them. But even when we are looking to them in the hopes that they would just praise us and affirm us, that's not loving them. That is needing them in an unhealthy way uh, because they have something that we must have, which is their praise. But as we practice this discipline and are more, more and more rooted in our identity in Christ, then we can actually begin to give ourselves away to love this person freely rather than having this compulsive neediness towards them of their praise. So you can you can love them fully and completely um, without strings attached, without hoping that they will affirm you in these ways and give you the strokes that you feel like you need. Uh, Great quotes from C.S. Lewis regarding humility. True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. And so what it results in is thinking of God and others instead. Here's what he says, uh, what uh, a humble person looks like. To even get near humility, even for a moment, is like a drink of cold water to a man in a desert. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he's nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you if you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. 
He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. I think that that's a beautiful picture of somebody who could be described as free, liberated to love God and love people. Okay, a few other uh, a few other God given fruits that can result from this practice, and then we'll move on to feasting. Practice of secrecy produces following God given fruit. Freedom to practice spiritual disciplines in secret. This is why it's so critical with regard to everything we've talked about this spring. Uh, The freedom to be misunderstood without seeking to justify yourself or rationalize your behavior. And maybe accompanying that, think about, gosh, that was a collective sigh. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, Even the being free of the incessant need to replay over and over again that conversation in your head, even if it's not something outward where you rationalize and justify what you just said. We're talking about a freedom from replaying that conversation over and over and over and over and over again in your head for hours, days, weeks to come, where you look back and cringe on what you said or how you were misunderstood and wish that you would have said this differently. This sets us free from that. By the way, if you really work hard, this erases is pretty good right there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. Uh, number three. Freedom to live in peace rather than in constant competition. This results, again, this freedom uh, results in real peace, a real sense of wholeness in that way. Fourthly, the freedom to receive praise and recognition well, and then moving on without needing to add any self-deprecating comments. And we don't often think of that like the reception of praise as being a way in which this would manifest itself, but it totally does. Um, I think the adding of those comments sometimes makes us think we're being humble. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Um, and there's another in that same chapter on the the great sin in uh, the Lewis's chapter, Mere Christianity on Pride. The way he talks about how we would think of ourselves and how we would receive praise is that we would just we'd be just as excited as to what we do as we are for other people, but not in a way that's self-aggrandizing and and drawing attention to ourselves. But it's because we have this appropriate view of God and people ourselves included in that. So it's not like a it's not a false downplay of oh shucks, you know, uh, but nor nor is it like a I'm drawing attention to myself. It's it's a healthy appreciation of what God is doing in your own life in the same way that we'd be excited about what God's doing in the lives of other people. Uh, Okay, so how do we begin this practice? Uh, I'm trying to get a a little more practical here. Uh, Practice other disciplines to root yourself in the gospel and your identity in Christ. Again, this is a this is helpful uh, as a complementary discipline to others that we've talked about. Uh, Find acts of service to your roommate, your family members, your coworkers, your neighbors that you can render without letting anyone know what you have done or why you have done it. Just thinking of concrete, specific things that you can do in that way and then do them. And even try, even now, try and identify a couple things this week that you could do for which you would see, re- receive no recognition whatsoever. Uh, refrain from the compulsion to tell all you know. Celebrate the achievements of others without bringing up your own. Um, and we're masters at working that into conversation Oh, that reminds me of something that I did. <laughs> uh, and then going with it in that way. 
so the practice of secrecy, hugely important, tied in uh, with a lot of disciplines, but I think specifically of solitude and silence. When we talked about that, I think this discipline goes hand in hand with that. Um, I even think uh, I think fasting and, and stewardship are also two disciplines that we've discussed that go with this as well. Obviously, for reasons that Jesus mentions in the Sermon on the Mount. Any questions or thoughts on secrecy before we move on to something that is not not related? <laughs> Great. Yeah. Go ahead. to be seen yeah right yeah that's great those are great examples and that i do think that's where this this practice gets gets to a point where there are some things that are going to be unavoidable in the way that you talk and it comes down to what are your motives in your speaking you know to where you can say here's what i do in my devotional practices and it's not in an effort to parade your righteousness but if it's like a comment for everyone to see right yeah yeah. Yes. Yeah. Where you just message them. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. Thank you for that. That's yeah. That's great. Okay. Feasting. This is sometimes called celebration as a discipline, which is awesome. <laughs> uh, I focused on feasting though because I think that is. Uh, I think that's a great way for this to be practiced in a, I mean, like for a very realistic way for us to really practice this. I think this is beautiful and wonderful and fantastic that this is a discipline of the Christian life. That feasting is something that you and I should do in order to come to know Jesus more and become more like him. You need to feast. That is incredible, right? Uh, And today is the day for feasting. So this could not be a better day to have this on. And that was intentional. Uh, This is the time to feast. So there are sometimes other practices (laughs) included. I I shouldn't even laugh. But like uh, there are other things uh, that that are included in if you read stuff on celebration that gets out into. And this is good, like like dancing and exuberant praise and excitement. Uh, 
And I think feasting could be like a like kind of a baby step in that direction. Like, you want me to move my body? What? Uh, so feasting is kind of the could be a first step in that direction. Um, that's what this could be. Okay, here's what it is. Celebration is the completion of worship. This is great from Willard. For it dwells on the greatness of God as shown in his goodness to us. We engage in celebration when we enjoy ourselves, our life, our world in conjunction with our faith and confidence in God's greatness, beauty and goodness. We concentrate on our life and world as God's work and as God's gift to us. Typically, this means that we come together with others who know God to eat and drink, to sing and dance and to relate stories of God's action for our lives and our people. And a quote from Augustine, the Christian should be an alleluia from head to foot. Uh, I went over the top with biblical passages on purpose. Uh, We won't read all of these. Um, You've got Miriam. Um, singing, dancing, Deborah's song in Judges 5, almost all the songs of the Old Testament are instances of this glorious celebration. Uh, and then King David, who dances, look at, uh, look at verse 14, 2 Samuel 6, 14. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. David was wearing a linen ephod, so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And as the ark, as the ark of the Lord came into the city, uh, my, M- Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the win- window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Uh, Deuteronomy 14. This is really interesting. This is in this portion of instruction on tithes. And so it says, go here to this place, bring your your tithe. But then look at um, look at 24. And if the way is too long for you so that you're not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who's within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. Bringing people in and celebrating before the Lord as an act of worship. Uh, Psalm 30, we'll look at that a little bit later. Psalm 104, this is a beautiful, creational, like uh, gritty kind of hymn. Or hymn. Yeah, it is a hymn, a, a psalm. Uh that recounts God's goodness to us in creation. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord, you are very great. And then verse 14, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for men to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. Uh, Jesus turning water to wine at the the, uh, wedding at Cana, that's his first miracle, is to make really good wine and to make a whole lot of it. Uh, Jeremiah 31, uh, this is the feast, the, the way that the, the Old Testament prophets look forward to the day of the Lord and, and what God coming as king was going to mean for Israel, for the people of God. It's a feast, as Keith described so beautifully. Uh, they shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. They shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, the oil, over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden and they shall languish no more. 
similar there in Hosea. Look at Amos 9. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild their ruined cities and inhabit them. <clears throat> they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. Isaiah 25, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. And then, of course, Revelation 19. This is the wedding feast of the lamb. That's how uh, that is how the, uh, the this final culmination of God's redemptive work in the world is described. It's a party. It's a wedding feast. Um, let me do this real quick. Uh, just to see this, almost everything significant that happens in the Bible happens around a meal. It happens around food. Very quickly, Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve are created with bodies to eat food. And God says, I'm giving you this to eat and to enjoy. Genesis 3, what happens in the fall? It happens by eating, eating this fruit. Okay. Um, fast forward, Exodus 12, Passover meal that Darwin talked about this morning. You eat this lamb and that becomes then the precedent for all these Old Testament feasts where you're eating that which was sacrificed. Uh, you have the manna in the wilderness as being kind of this this issue as to whether we're going to trust God to provide for us or whether we're going to complain, grumble, hope for more. Um, fast forward even further then New Testament, uh, Matthew four, Jesus was tempted with food like Adam. He succeeded where Adam failed in that temptation. Uh, plenty of instances of significance of meals, particularly, I mean, think of like Luke, it happens in every gospel, but really significance of meals that Jesus uh, has there um, with people of ill repute in, in society. Matthew 22, and this is the parallel passages, the kingdom is described as a banquet there. Uh, John 6, Jesus tells us to eat his flesh and to drink his blood. That's actually how we'll have his life in us. Mark 14, the Last Supper, and then the institution of the Lord's Supper, eating. John 21, what's the first thing that Jesus does in John's gospel after he rises from the grave? He eats breakfast. He eats fish for breakfast. He has a meal. Uh, that's what he does. He has a meal. Uh, Acts 2, moving into the early church, has a meal as this integral part of our worship and life together. That's why we have the meal that we do every single week. Uh, and then Revelation 19, it will culminate in this feast. Uh, the Bible is about food in a huge, huge way. Uh, okay, uh, I'm going to move through this. Why is this difficult? Um, yeah, let me, let me throw that out there. Why, why might this be difficult for us to, for this to be a practice or discipline? Yeah, John. Think of the starving children in Africa. We're not supposed to. We're supposed to sort of be somber and, you know, oh, don't spend money on that. You know, mm -hmm. we need to support a missionary. Yeah, yeah. This kind of low, low grade guilt constantly running in the background as to well, this should be going elsewhere. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yes. Huge. Um, yeah, and you could even just say with that, uh, we're so prone to gluttony, uh, the misuse of food as a means of escape from our circumstances. We talked about this when we talked about fasting. But yeah, I think all that contributes to it as well so that um, feasting isn't quite as special when we're gorging ourselves every day. 
And misusing food. Yeah. What else? Yeah, Jacob. So good. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, um, we don't we don't build time into our schedules in order to have long feasting meals with people to have them into our homes because we have so much going on. Yeah, yeah, that's huge. Yeah, Melanie. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We're it, yeah. We practice it independent of God, as if that were really possible. But yeah, right. Um, and I think this could lead into something else too. That we just in general, uh, and we've talked about this some, that we have these kind of Gnostic tendencies which would view the physical created world as. At best, sub-spiritual. At worst, evil and to be avoided in some way. Uh, Rather than viewing it as like the Bible does. uh, Where Psalm 104, for instance, talks of the glory of the way in which we can enjoy these things to God's glory. Not only should we, but uh, we of all people as those who belong to Jesus are those who have been restored to an appreciation and a worship of God by these these practices. Yeah. Just one other. Yeah. from Willard. This is really helpful as a general perspective on this. We dishonor God as much by fearing and avoiding pleasure as we do by dependence upon it or living for it. That's helpful. Um, yeah, we, we can kind of default into like the we don't practice aesthetic or ascetic things like that, but uh, we feel like maybe we should. Uh, and he's saying, no, that's not right. OK, so why should we feast? Uh, Practice of feasting acknowledges and praises God as the creator of pleasure and giver of desire. It's not wrong to enjoy the physical pleasures of feasting in this way. It's not wrong to enjoy good food with good friends together. It's how God's created us. 
It's what he's redeemed us for, in a sense, in, in remaking the image of God in us so that we can, as I said earlier, rightly enjoy God's creation as he intended for us to do so. Uh, let me read this quote. Uh, this is a book I recommend for this. Robert Farrar Capon. It looks like Capone. It's Capon. This book called The Supper of the Lamb, which is like a, a book that can't be categorized. It's a cookbook that has stuff like this. Yeah. So listen to this. Uh, this is where he's talking about cooking and feasting. There's a habit that plagues many so-called spiritual minds. They imagine that matter and spirit are somehow at odds with each other and that the right course for human life is to escape from the world of matter into some finer and purer and undoubtedly duller realm. (laughs) To me, that is a crashing mistake, and it is above all a theological mistake, because, in fact, it was God who invented dirt and onions and turnip greens. God who invented human beings with their strange compulsion to cook food. God, who at the end of each day of creation pronounced a resounding good over his own concoctions. And it is God's unrelenting love of all the stuff of this world that keeps it in being at every moment. So if we are fascinated, even intoxicated by matter, it's no surprise. We're made in the image of the ultimate materialist. Food and cooking, therefore, are not low subjects. In fact, there are no low subjects anywhere in the physical universe. Every every real thing is a joy. If only you have eyes and ears to relish it, a nose and a tongue to taste it. This is the way this book reads all the way through, and it is awesome. Um, That's what this practice is meant to do, is to develop that last sentence. Develop eyes, ears, noses, and tongues to appreciate it and to relish it. Uh, Practice of feasting makes God's goodness real to us in the midst of sorrow. This is legitimate and right. We might view this as like uh, escapism. That's not what this is intended to be. This is a reminder in, in, in reality of God's goodness to us in the midst of sorrow. I think that's why even uh, you have these moments in the midst of real darkness funerals, for example, where you can have these moments that of this like feasting that is like at the same time, both just sad, devastating even and overwhelmingly joyful to be with uh, these people and to recognize and celebrate that the resurrection is true. Um, practice of feasting disavows us of our Gnostic tendencies. It helps us. Uh, enjoy the world rightly for God's glory. You can, the cape and quote gets at that. Practice of feasting enables and complements the practice of fasting, as Sarah mentioned. Uh, I won't read those quotes. We got to keep moving here. Practice of feasting on holidays enhances celebration and praise of God. Easter should be a complete and total party. And and one of the ways that, uh, that you'll see in the... Uh, Practical ways to do this is to really take seriously those sort of Christian feast days within our that, that we celebrate. Uh, make Christmas just this huge, awesome thing and invite people from around to be a part of it with you, to enjoy it with you. Uh, Easter is is prime example of that. So um, make the most of those things and in the midst of them, give praise to God for all that you're doing. That's not something separate from what we would do here on a Sunday morning, but as Willard says, it's the completion of it because it recognizes this is what God's doing in us, in our lives now. Practice of feasting shows our children and our neighbors that life in Christ is one of abundant joy, not of solemn drudgery. I think this is huge if you think about, uh, like, what do we want our children to view the Christian life as one of solemn drudgery, 
one of uh, mere disciplines of abstaining or those that are complemented with this rich enjoyment of the creator of the universe who has redeemed them by the blood of his son in order to rightly enjoy him in this world. Uh, And think about how differently our non-Christian neighbors might look at us when they see the way that we enjoy feasts like this. I think that is a powerful apologetic for the truth of Christianity. Um, Okay, practice of feasting prepares us for eternity in the new creation. Let me read this cape and quote. We're not simply users of creation. We are, all of us, called to be its offerers. The world will be lifted as it always was, was always meant to be by our priestly love. We can, you see, take it with us. It will be precisely because we love this old Jerusalem of a world enough to bear it in our bones that its textures will ascend when we rise. The resurrection. It will be because our eyes have relished the earth that the colors of its countries will compel our hearts forever. The bread and pastry, the cheeses, the wines and the songs go into the supper of the lamb because we do. It is our love that brings the city home. How do we begin this? Have friends into your home regularly. Find a time in your schedule, whether it's every two weeks, once a month, whatever is possible. Find a time where you can regularly build that in as just something that just like baseball or just like Bible study. It's on there because you're going to do it. Uh, Make it a discipline in that way. We get to make it a discipline in that way. Praise God during and after celebrations. And then finally, consider how you can go all out in your celebration of Christian holidays with friends and family. Uh, I hope we do that today. Uh, And if you don't have plans to do that today, take this opportunity to make some even now. (laughs) Uh, Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you have invited us to the great banquet and that we who belong to your son will feast with him. He will sit down at table with us and dine with us where we will eat the most wonderful food that we've ever tasted and drink the most glorious wine that has ever been in us. Lord, we long for that day. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you, our risen king, would come that you would bring forth uh, all of the glory of your new creation and that you would complete this work of redemption, that we would be those who stand with you, worshiping you, enjoying all that you are and all that you've done. In your name we pray. Amen.